Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest on this Currents episode is Joe Norman. Uh, Joe is a complexity science researcher, a data scientist, and a homesteader in Western Massachusetts. Is that right, or is it New Hampshire? I'm in southwestern New Hampshire, very okay. close to Western Mass. And uh, okay, in southwestern New Hampshire, I've been there. Probably uh, is it near Mount Monadnock by any chance? We're in the Monadnock region. That's exactly right. Yeah, when I was in college, and then then we lived in Massachusetts again in the '80s. We used to go out there. Beautiful area, I can tell Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Anyway, as we usually do on these Currents episodes, we're going to start with a single bit. In this case, a uh, tweet by Joe, which caught my eye. You can probably imagine why my uh, people who listen to the show regularly. Uh, This is what Joe had to say. With no community, we lack both a unit to sacrifice for and a unit to keep assholes in check. What did you mean by that, Joe? What did I mean by that? Well, let's see. Um, first, I'll say that I don't uh, vet my own tweets uh, very strongly. I'm kind of a um, off-the-cuff tweeter. I like to just get my thoughts out there. They're not meant to be uh, refined. Um, but I, I agree. In this case, this is that was, a, in my opinion, a good tweet. And um, so what did I mean by that? So, so much of, of the reflections and thinking and doing that I've been involved in uh, in the past few years has, has revolved around this idea of localism. And we, we can kind of go into what do I mean by that? What do others mean by that? But the essential idea of the tweet is that biological systems are naturally structured into units at multiple levels, right? Like, so we have multicellular organisms that are composed of cells. So cells are in some sense their own semi they're bounded um, they interact with the cells around them um, but there's clearly another unit of organization overlaying the cells that is the organism that the cells uh, compose similarly when you let humans uh, do their natural thing we compose into multiple layers of units Uh, A person can be like a cell in an organism. I say can be because it's not necessarily the case. Um, When we look at what's happened over the last, where to demarcate? I don't know. Let's just say last 75 years. um, What's happened specifically in in the U.S., but I I think globally, but, but I can speak more directly to the U.S. We've had this kind of disappearance of what, what I'm referring to as community in that tweet um, which is what I take the sort of next layer on top of maybe not individuals, maybe families to, to be. So there's sort of individuals, there's families, and then there's a community that's composed of, of families. I, I, I believe that we are in a widespread way, not universally, some people still have it. We have the Amish and whatnot, but in general, we, we are lacking that community layer of organization uh, of humans and some of the consequences of that are that um, when it comes time to make tough decisions, for instance, you know, sacrifices that an individual might make, uh, we're lacking actually a certain, not abstract, but concrete unit 
where we might make some sacrifices on the individual or even family level in the interest of that uh, larger unit. And when I say larger, I'm really thinking of something, you know, not much bigger than maybe a couple thousand people. Maybe it's even smaller. Maybe it's more Dunbar's number um, or something like that, you know, 150. I, I don't know and I don't claim to know, but I do know that in, in the world we exist in right now, the sort of next level up from family to the extent that we have family as a unit is kind of the abstract state, often even conceived of as the national government or maybe even sort of the global state systems. Um, so, so we have this huge gap between very sort of small scale local structures involving uh, individuals and groups of individuals and very large scale abstract bureaucratic uh, systems that um, there's no, there's no in between. And, and then the assholes in check part, keeping assholes in check because those other uh, organizational units are so far above in scale of the, the local group when an asshole knows how to game those bureaucracies, say, um, sort of navigate them in a savvy way that might not be ethical, but jives with the rules of the system as they stand, there's, there's no uh, function, there's, there, there's no mechanism that can kind of spot that and, and root it out or, or dampen it um, that's other than the bureaucracy itself, which is, which is simply not close enough, not personal enough, not sensitive enough, et cetera, to actually uh, put individual bad action into place. Very good. Uh, I like that a lot, actually. Uh, it ties into some things I've written. In uh, an essay I wrote on Medium called A Journey to Game B, uh, I laid out the thesis that one of the chronic problems of our time is that what used to be handled in extended families, and that's interesting, I have about 65 first cousins. And so if you, you know, throw in spouses and a few kids, you're around Dunbar's number, yeah, right? Seriously. And uh, so, you know, an extended family used to take care of business. Somebody, you know, went nuts, became a dipsomaniac, a, a good old fashioned name for drunk. Uh, the extended family took care of them. Uh, one of my uncles had a problem with a bottle and he lived in my grandmother's attic for many years. And yeah, he wasn't on the street and he wasn't a nuisance. And, you know, he, he was good old Uncle Paul. Right. Uh, and then the other one was the extended face-to-face -face community. And I think you're about right at a couple of thousand, two or three thousand. Uh, it's interesting. The county I live in, Highland County, Virginia, is the uh, reputed to be the lowest population density east of the Mississippi River. Uh, we have about, uh, it's a county of about 450 square miles, pretty good sized county, 2,200 people. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So there's and, a thousand people in my town. So yeah, I yeah, also so, know how that feels. Yeah. Sure. yeah and we don't know. I don't know everybody at the 2200, but I know people that know everybody. So, you know, at, right. at nodal distance two, I'm connected to everybody in the county, essentially, and, and call that the face to face county, a community. So that used to be what took care of us, our extended family around the Dunbar number, plus or minus, and then our face to face community of a thousand to five thousand, probably. But over time, the extended communities have dissipated. Uh, you know, my brothers live various places. My cousins are here, there, and yon, right? One lives in Fairbanks, Alaska. Another one lives in Utah. Some of them, I have no idea where they live. And the face-to-face -face community has, as you pointed out, uh, has ceded more and more of its responsibility to other uh, domains. And the two domains that strike me as having 
fill that gap is first the government, right? And as you say, some people just think of the federal government, but even if it's not the federal government, it's the county government or the state government who are by design as uh, value-free as we can make them in many ways, right? They're, at least in the United States, in the, in the Enlightenment model, uh, they should not try to put strong points of view on things. And uh, their definitions of assholishness have to be essentially uh, operational and formal, right. as opposed to the local, uh, the extended family and the uh, face-to-face community. You know, it's like uh, good old uh, Potter Stewart's definition of uh, pornography. I know it when I see it, right? Exactly right. Yep. And so, so we have government, very formal, and then we have the market, uh, which uh, is much more flexible and accommodating to human nature. But on the other hand, it's by definition anonymous and transactional, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody cares about your reputation when you go in to buy a loaf of bread uh, when, when it's money for the dollar. And so uh, the things that used to be hap- uh, handled closer at hand are almost all now handled either by the government or the market. Uh, I've had my choice between the two. I choose the market more often than not, but there are some social things that need to be done, which are just not being done. Uh, and, you know, and I think you hit on two of them. Uh, one is sacrifice. You know, uh, how many of us are prepared to sacrifice for the federal government, right? right. Uh, not too many people. State of Virginia, maybe a little better. Highland County, for the people of Highland County, yes, by face-to-face community, but for the three members of the Board of uh, Supervisors, not really. And how many of us are prepared to uh, sacrifice for the market? Not at all. In fact, that's not what markets are for. Markets are not for sacrifice. They're for, uh, you know, sort of anonymous transactions that are uh, mutually beneficial. And that's good. It's very important, but it, but it doesn't serve uh, either of your two things. Uh, the other one that I thought was interesting that you uh, hit on, but I'm going to expand and move it on a little bit, uh, are assholes. And then sort of the, the uh, premium grade assholes, which are sociopaths, right? Uh, when you have uh, anonymous situations like markets and when you have formal systems of levers of power like government, guess who uh, flies to both of those like, sh- like flies to shit? Uh, sociopaths, right? And to, and, uh, and to my mind, uh, one of the biggest problems of, of, of our society and something that we don't fix is literally going to kill us uh, is the very high overrepresentation of sociopaths in systems of power. Uh, I have much more experience on the business side than I do on the governance side, but I say that at the sea level of uh, real companies, Probably 10% of the C-level executives are sociopaths, uh, up from about 1% in the, in the general population. And if you go into finance, it's probably 30%, which is a, a crazy and scary thought. And, uh, and that comes from, frankly, the transactional nature, nature of markets. Shareholders say, hey, get the stock price up. I don't care if you're a you know, rape them, pillage them fucking sociopath, right? At least yeah. since 1975. Prior to that, uh, business actually had uh, included some community of ethics, but I would say increasingly since 1975, and particularly for publicly traded companies, but also for larger pre-public companies, particularly those caught in the vortex of venture capital, uh, sociopathy actually works. <laughs> what the fuck, right? And there's something wrong with that. Uh, and so, you know, moving more of our life back to scales uh, where, you know, we actually are prepared to sacrifice and where there is some mechanism for keeping assholes in check 
strikes me as damn close to of the essence of uh, of how we solve the you know the meta crisis that our society is in. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's actually interesting that you sort of defined markets as transactional. I definitely agree with, but anonymous. That seems to be to me a um, a consequence of this spreading and scaling up. You know, when you repeatedly went to the uh, same butcher down the street um, for 50 years in a row. And not only that, but that guy also lives down the other street just up the road from you. And so you know him also outside of that transactional relationship. You have markets that are no longer sort of decoupled from, from that community uh, soil, that community ground. And um, so it's not merely the transactions that are actually allowing the markets to, to the, the goods capital to flow through the market. It's also the relationships that are layered behind that, um, those transactions. So it's not anonymous. And I think that's part of the, the problem is that anonymity where um, we're looking for these kind of trustless exchanges and, and um, maybe even one-off exchanges. Whereas in, in a local setting, you get uh, repetitive exchanges um, you get different qualities of exchanges. I mean, there's obviously currency exchange, there's bartering that becomes um, more available because there's not all this sort of distance friction. It's very easy to, you know, trade some eggs for some a loaf of bread with your neighbor. It's not a, it's not a difficult transaction to, to facilitate. So, so I do think that markets in a local context become non-anonymous. So that I, I, I'm not sure if that's a sort of a definitional uh aspect of markets or if it's sort of an incidental one from from the current situation we have i think that's great i love that distinction you know because you know let's think about what we do business locally uh you know famously in a small town including this area if you are really in a bad way they'll extend your credit right uh and that's just part of their social obligation even though they know from an economic perspective it makes no sense to lend you money at zero interest that you may default on right uh and then of course the flip side of that is you better not default if you want your standing in the community to remain good uh and so there's you know there are non-economic forces as opposed to you know, I'm buying something fucking Amazon. Uh, the only recourse Amazon has is to, you know, sprinkle some shit powder on my Experian credit record, right? Again, yep. two anonymous transactions that are not normal, not what humans uh, uh, are, are really all about. And then the second one is that when we, we act locally in the face-to-face community, we make some interesting qualitative choices. Uh, for instance, let's say there's two plumbers uh, in our town, right? Uh, both of them have similar skill and similar price, but one's an asshole and the other is a charming person who you enjoy, uh, you know, chatting with and you enjoy having in your home. Uh, you know, if you make the the principled choice, let's even say the asshole is slightly cheaper, right? But you make the principled choice that I'm going to give my business to the good person. Uh, you know, that is a non-economic, non-anonymous uh, kind of way of doing business that, you know, try as, as opposed to who you're going to buy a can of spam from on uh, Amazon as you build up your larder for the uh, zombie apocalypse. Uh, it doesn't enter it at all. And so that comes to your other point, which is, I think, the broader and extended point, uh, uh, which is the idea around localism as a, a, a 
perhaps better and more humane way to, to organize uh, human, uh, human life. I know you've thought and actually you've written quite a bit about localism. Could you maybe expand on the, on the theme of localism and what that means to you and why you think it's, uh, it's an improvement over what we have today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so much we're talking about is in that direction. And I don't think of localism as a system. I kind of think of it as a, as a kind of meta system. It's a structure that allows uh, multiple systems to emerge. Um, sort of it's similar to the way you, you can think of capitalism that way too, right? Uh, the market is not so much a system as it is uh, an ecosystem through which various things evolve and, and co-evolve and whatnot. So I, I, I think of localism in a similar way. It's about setting up the conditions for development and evolution of, of particular systems rather than an imposition of particular systems. Uh, with, with that kind of preamble out of the way, I think what is crucial about local interaction is what we're talking about. There's necessarily in local interactions a bundling together of all of these different flows, of flows of information, currency, goods and services, and w all of the subtle exchanges that we have as humans that are not easy to articulate, not easy to formalize, maybe impossible in many cases to formalize. So you do, you have uh, an interaction with somebody that maybe is going to do some plumbing work for you or something, and that's either a, an enjoyable interaction or it's not. And that's not something that can be captured in a dollar value necessarily. Um, so, so there, there's a density of interaction that we see in the natural world. Um, things that are close together in space tend to have a high uh, occurrence of interactions with one another by virtue of their closeness to one another. But it's the, it's the consequences of that density of interaction. You get um, things like emergent like cycles in the system. So you're, so you're having loops in the system. You know, I'm paying uh, the farmer down the street for one of his hogs. He's paying the electrician up the road for their electric work. And that electrician is coming to me and, and say, buying some eggs off of me. And now we're, we're actually having these circular kinds of flows within the system that are, are in essence, nourishing the system. And we're all actually benefiting not only from the direct transaction, the sort of pairwise transaction that we participated in, but all of the positive externalities that come out of that nourishment being local. So, you know, the, the, my friend's uh, farm down the street is doing really good business. Guess what? His property is kept up real nice. The value of the neighborhood is going up. So now his neighbor is also doing better as his house home value goes up, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so this density uh, of interactions has all of these sort of emergent effects. You can think of them as side effects. Um, but the, the important part is that um, it's not in any one reducible interaction that the benefit is. It's in the collective aggregation of all of these actions existing um, in a dense spot where even without any planning or, or explicit coordination, things end up interac in, interacting with one another uh, with a high density and, and, and circling around the system and recycling around the system. In principle, you can imagine this happens at the global scale with global trade and thing, but, but, but there's, no, there's nowhere to be to get a handle on it, to get a sense of it. Um, things dissipate more readily in wider systems. They don't necessarily come back around in any uh, timescale that's meaningful. I think that, that the things coming back around um, in a short time scale, relatively short time scale, relative to human action, human behavior, is a big part of what the essence of localism offers.
Yeah. And again, as we talked about, it, it, one of the beauties is while, we, while the economic signal is still there, whether it's currency or barter, both are economic, both are there, they're wrapped in a broader uh, container of ethics, right? right. Yeah. Uh, ethics and, and frankly, just sociability, you know, a conformance with uh, decent behavior. Uh, and you, know, you wonder why, you know, it actually sort of explains why, you know, the quality of human behavior seems to have been going down for the last 80 years or thereabouts. Uh, because hell, most of our relationships are transactional or, or with, uh, you know, sort of mandated entities like the government, right, which yeah. are supposed to be uh, gray and bland and not respond differently, whether you're an asshole or a good person. Right. And so, of course, you know, you, you do less uh, uh, punishment and less, re less punishment of assholes and less nourishment of good people. What do you expect to get over time, right? Unfortunately. Yep. Yep. Uh, so I think that's a, a very important part of localism. On the other hand, let me throw out the other. Uh, you know, here I am in my uh, very remote mountain farm and population density is low, as I mentioned. So we could easily support the population of the county uh, with our local agriculture and be able to export quite a bit. Uh, and uh, that is a very good feeling, particularly during the mini zombie apocalypse, right? Uh, we know we're not going to starve here under most circumstances. Uh, but there was a case back in the, I think it was in the late 30s, uh, where this local small county was hit by a devastating drought, not just a normal drought, but a drought that literally killed everything, right? And except for one little corner of the county, which now has the name of Little Egypt, because uh, most of the people from the Central Valley had to literally migrate down to Little Egypt with their cattle, pigs, and chickens, and everything else uh, to just survive uh, that horrendous summer. Now, I don't think it hit our valley so bad, but over the next valley over, literally, they had to go to Little Egypt. And so there is some benefit from you know, local uh, clusters that trade with each other, right? Uh, so if we had, if, and this was, you know, when this county, I mean, we didn't have electricity here at this farm until 1962 right? Uh, so this was a very remote place in that day. But, you know, to the degree it was coupled to, you know, the next valley over and, you know, up, up the river to the next county and down and over, say, a, you know, a four or five county area, you're big enough that you have uh, differentiated your risks, at least with respect to drought most of the time. And also things like uh, insect pests and, you know, things of that sort. So, there, you know, as we know, in investing, the only free run lunch is diversification. Uh, there's some of that true also uh, with respect to, uh, you know, uh, to trade. So we, sh you know, the idea of becoming ultra localist, you know, autarkic at the level of the county is probably a dangerous idea because it's less robust in some sense uh, than is a more differentiated portfolio. On the other hand, when we get to a very complicated system like today's world trade, you know, we can see instantly what happens. Oh, fuck, all the masks are made in China. The Chinese are holding on to their masks. We're fucked, right? All the nose swabs in the world are made outside of Milan, Italy, or almost all of them. Uh, who got hit first by the virus? Milan, Italy. Oops, no swabs. Uh, you know, if we'd had a, a much more distributed system, uh, the opportunity for uh, robustness in that system uh, would have been increased. So it's, you know, you have to think of it as a, a, a robustness against various ensembles of risks and what is the, the right level of localism versus uh, essentially a diversified portfolio. So it certainly feels to me that when you add it all up, we're way too long range in our relationships today uh, than would be optimal. 
and that you know moving these relationships in so that they're richer in the face-to-face -face community and more personal even the next county over there's lots of intermarriages people know each other there's long-term opportunities for long-term reciprocity i think would be a good thing but you know how to do that is a damn hard question so, so, I mean, I agree with you uh, on everything you just said. And a lot of times uh, I, I've received the feedback on quite a few occasions where it's sort of, hey, Joe, but you can't just decentralize everything to, you know, whatever, down to atoms and everything's going to work. Of course not. Of course not. But the, the take home message is that exactly what you said. We've gone so far in the other direction of centralization, of, of distance specialization, um, of things like that, that the movement clearly needs to be in the local direction. And, and the ideal is, is, and when I say ideal, I don't mean the best state. I mean sort of the, the thing that you might aim for is sort of as local as possible. But to your point, to mitigate against certain risks, to get other kinds of benefits as local as possible can sometimes mean, you know, the level of the region, the level of, of the nation. Um, so it's, it's, you know, local is in essence a relational concept. There's no one local. What it means to be local depends on the context, depends on what you're talking about. And, and to your point about, you know, uh, one county or one area had a drought, a neighboring region didn't, and that's the savior of the neighboring region with the drought. If in that circumstance, all of the agriculture had been concentrated in the area that happened to receive the drought, everyone would have been screwed. So actually it was on a uh, Week, ago, week or so ago, Joel Salatin was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he articulated very well, um, you know, Joe Rogan asked him, how, how can this scale? You know, can it scale? And his answer was, of course it can, but it's, it's a scaling in duplication. It's not horizontal a, scale. Horizontal, yeah, horizontal scale. scale. Yeah, exactly. Not, not this sort of vertical, integrative, growing monstrosity that people sort of often naively expect to sort of behave the same, only bigger. Whereas from system science, we know very well, um, more is different. Um, I, I, I'm sort of adopting a bigger is different uh, language for that because I think that gets more at the kinds of things we're experiencing directly. Bigger is different. So, you know, in that duplicative type of growth, that horizontal growth, that's where you get that robustness and that redundancy that allows you to mitigate against uh, uncorrelated crises. So, so for each kind of possible, you know, so as you said, sort of ensembles of risk factors, there's a scale at which these things correlate and then there's a larger scale at which they don't. So yes, absolutely. From a, from a risk perspective, especially we need to be open to uh, the fact that when um, in some, for some scale, for some area correlated harmful event occurs, disruption occurs, there needs to be support and ability to exchange with, with the next local scale, whatever the neighbors of that unit happens to be. Um, and, and, and so, and so, you know, when we talk about localism, I often throw off any qualifier and just talk about localism, but really I'm talking about multi-scale localism. So, you know, home is a unit, the home and family, the town is another unit, the county is another unit, the state is another unit. So it's this layering of units. It's not that one needs to take precedence against all others. It, it's, it's in fact a dis distribution across scales. And thinking about that intelligently is what nobody in, in power is doing, right? Uh, it's, it's scandalous that uh, if you were to ask the President of the United States to, to you know, contemplate the idea of 
uh, you know, fractal hierarchical localism, he'd look at you like, who the fuck are you, dude, right? He'd have not a clue one. And how can that be here in, in, in 2020 when most of our problems going forward are essentially complex systems problems? That's right. That's right. So I've seen, uh, strangely, when um, I've seen localism, the term pop up in a couple places I haven't been expecting it. There is, there does seem to be from this coronavirus uh, crisis, a bit of people's ears are getting hot when they hear that because they, they know they haven't heard it and they, it rings true to a lot of people that there's something about this that's about right. And, and you're exactly right. That, and it's not just the politicians. It's our public discourse is mired in this sort of system versus system, you know, uh, communism versus capitalism, left versus right, uh, these kinds of, is, is, it, is that the right way to uh, administer the system or is that? And all of these conversations are missing the crucial factor of scale. And for many systems, that's going to be, that's going to d- determine more of the way the system behaves than the nominal, you know, the label of the system that you're trying to implement. So probably a commune of a thousand people looks more similar to a small market of a thousand people than either of those look to uh, a market of a billion people or a communism of a billion people. Yep, I think that's uh, that's exactly right. And I do think it's important for those of us who do see this to, you know, keep the discourse going, right? In fact, I'm actually working on an essay right now. I uh, hope to get it out in a week or two called, uh, it's a call for a federal department of wicked wit risks uh, uh, that would essentially inform the federal government and have a, a group of people who are scanning and listening and planning and modeling, uh, et cetera, and doing, uh, you know, uh, you know, mock decision-making to get leaders psychologically prepared to make decisions under stress in complex situations. And, you know, this recent COVID thing is a classic example across the West, every government essentially failed with a couple of exceptions, Denmark and Austria, maybe New Zealand. New Zealand would be great too, right? And Australia, a few, but most failed, right? And so you can't point to one clown of misery. They all got all our clowns of misery. Uh, And if you look back at who who did a better job, it was mostly places that had a dry run with SARS, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so if you could simulate that in the Department of Wicked Risks, say, hey, you know what? We're going to have a pan. There are pandemics. They got knobs of their contagion or lethality or something. Here's a not too implausible one. It turned out to be sort of like COVID-19. Let's run the scenario through and get the people to think in terms of coupled complex systems because you know the thing about that, that this uh, pandemic has made uh, so clear uh, is that you know major shocks to the system aren't just one system this is not just a health problem right it's a uh, it's an educational problem kids not going to school it's an economic problem at a massive scale it's a mental health problem right if you read some of the statistics uh, you know uh, mental health problems are up by a factor of four or five perhaps who knows might be horseshit but uh, we'll soon find out. And so, yeah, the, you know, the need for the public sphere more broadly, uh, you know, and not just government, business as well, uh, you know, needs to uh, learn how to take a multi-system, coupled system, multi-scale, complex uh, systems uh, view of reality and start thinking accordingly. And if we don't, you know, most of the big problems we have confronting us, uh, you know, climate change being a classic one, but uh, many others, uh, you know, I don't know how we're going to solve them. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think that's a, uh, a necessary idea to have if, if we're going to use these governing bodies as decision-making bodies as we are, then, then setting up a way of not waiting till the crisis is in motion to think about how would we react to this is very important. 
it's not just the decision making in the ongoing crisis, though. It's also how we structure our systems. And, and that's, you know, for these systemic risks, what, what makes something a systemic risk is that there is that possibility of propagation either through a single kind of system, you know, like the pandemic has on health, you know, I get sick, I get you sick, it's kind of moving through individuals, and these coupled sort of heterogeneous cascades, I, all of a sudden schools are closed, stores are closing down, meat packing facilities aren't working. So, so much of that needs to be not just the decisions made in the crisis, but the ongoing decisions we make to structure the system, so that when these things start to unfold, there's boundaries in the system and circuit breakers. And you know, back in January, I, I have a lot of as many people do, uh, criticisms about how Trump has handled this. One criticism I don't have is his closing of flights from China in January. That was a good decision. And the reason it was such a politically difficult decision was because we're not thinking enough in terms of the structure of the system and the, and the cascades it opens us up to. It should be um, obvious that if there's a pandemic risk unfolding somewhere in the world that's highly connected like China, that it's going to cost us a lot less to pause flights for a little while than it is to wait to pause flights, pause them later, and also have a massive pandemic on our hands. So these things need to become more obvious to, to decision makers and to how we govern things. It needs to not be just uh, some esoteric knowledge of, of, of some smart guys in, in, in academia or something like that. The other thing about coronavirus that's interesting, connecting back to the, the tweet that we, we sort of grounded the show on, I'm pretty sure what I was thinking about when I wrote that tweet was the resistance to wearing masks that we're seeing. It has become a political polarization that determines whether you're for or against wearing masks to buffer the, the spread of a, a respiratory uh, disease. And it struck me that that's a small sacrifice throw on a mask to go into the store. That's, that's like, that's not a very big sacrifice at all. We're not, I'm not saying your livelihood, your this, your that. This is like put on a freaking mask and, and you know, save someone some real heartache, maybe, maybe someone older, maybe, maybe one of your relatives, maybe one of your friend's relatives, you know, if you want to kind of dice it out into these age groups if, as people are doing. If we didn't lack that layer of community, I think for most people, regardless of political disposition, that would be a very easy decision because a community isn't sort of horizontally uh, partitioned by age groups or something like that. That's, that's a complete artificiality that we've imposed. And you, we would see the effects. We would say, I don't want to lose uh, these people in my community. Like if this is what I need to do, small sacrifice, put on a mask, you know, maybe someone likes it, but I think it's pretty agreed upon. It's annoying. You don't want to wear it. It's, but you do it because it's a small sacrifice that serves the larger good. Um, so that, I think that was actually the source of the tweet. It, it was both, the, the fact that there's the lack of that individual um, incentive structure to, you know what, I'm going to put this on because I see how it will affect my community and I want to help my community. And the assholes that refuse to do it. There's no community to say, hey, asshole, put on a fucking mask. That's great. Why don't we wrap it up there? Sure. That's, the, that's the alpha and the omega. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation, Joe, just what I was hoping. I figured we'd uh, start with one place and go every which way, which we did. And I think we, we highlighted a whole bunch of things that's worthwhile for people to think about. So thanks for being here. Absolutely, Jim. Anytime. Good talking right. to you. Very good. Let me turn off the recording. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.